Hello, Dr. Dyke Drummond here at the home of TheHappyMD.com in beautiful Seattle, Washington. Welcome to the latest episode of the Physicians on Purpose podcast. Tools so you can recognize and prevent your own burnout. Stories of burnout put to its highest and best use. And wellness leadership strategies. Everything you need to be a physician on purpose. Hello again, Dr. Dyke Drummond here at the home of TheHappyMD.com in beautiful Seattle, Washington, with the latest edition of the Physicians on Purpose podcast. And I'm really excited here because I have on the show one of the good guys of physician leadership. So Len Scarponato is a doctor and a longtime leader in several different organizations he's been a member of. And he made the transition from being pure clinician to a blended role as somebody who sees patients and functions on the leadership team of his organization. And I know that that is a common thing for doctors to move into leadership as they get a few years of clinical experience under their belt. And it is fraught with a whole bunch of challenges. So Len, welcome to the show. Oh, it's great to be here. It's an honor and a privilege. And I've watched your podcast. I've listened to your lectures and all the good work that you're doing for physician executives and physicians in general. So appreciate the honor of being on your podcast. Oh, right on. So let's go back in time, if you will. Tell us about your early career and that point in time when it started to seem like it made sense for you to step into a leadership role. Yeah, I uh, I have a kind of a strange career, but I started out as an internist critical care doc and then with some advice because I was this was 30 years ago, 40 years ago. DOs, I wanted to be a chair of a department and people told me I would never be chair of an internal medicine department. And they said, you don't need that much training. Just get to be a family doc and you'll be a chair of a family medicine department in no time at all. So I was a practicing internist, critical care doc for about five years. And I went back and did a family medicine residency, uh, two years of it, because I had a year rotating DO internship. And when I came out, I was sort of figuring that I would be a program director. I was in the academic world, and that would be my entry into leadership. Now, why did I want to do that? Well, I had a program director above me who was not a good program director. <laughs> uh, they, did, they didn't have leadership skills. They, they did not listen, and uh, they weren't present. She wouldn't give me the associate program director position, even though it was clear that I had the ability and I was available. And uh, one of the things where the head nurse at the clinic of our residency said to me, you're more available on your days off than she is on her days of work. (laughs) So it it turned out that uh, I sought some counseling from other people in the academic world. And they said, it's clear that you need to move into the administrative world and, and have your own shop. So I did it. I, I sought out. We had uh, a lot of fellowships that were part-time for faculty. And I took one in administration and started to learn some of the stuff that is clearly needed over time. I don't think a clinician needs it right away to be a leader, but I do think over time, you start scratching your head and you say, why is this happening? Or why 
are these committees going this way when I'm trying to push them this way? And so I learned there was a lot of self-discovery. Uh, I did be, I did get my own shop. And while I was at my own uh, residency and I was building that up and listening and whatnot, I started looking at certificates in administration because I felt there was something more that I needed to learn. And I actually went at that point and said, I'm just going to get my master's. And I was lucky enough to get a seek and get a master's of administrative medicine from the University of Wisconsin Med School and Public Health and Business School. It was a joint sort of thing going on. So let me stop you right away because you've said two things that I find extraordinary. Because my experience, and I've dealt with thousands of C-suite leaders over the last 13 years, my experience is that two words never apply to a senior healthcare leader. One is available. You said you're Somebody told you you were more available than the actual leader. And the second one is you said the word listening. Are you kidding? You have to be available to listen and you have to be available and stop giving orders in order to hear somebody else speak. So you've just said two things that are obviously a piece of your personality and your makeup and your leadership style, which will carry you as high as you want to go. I'll promise you that. But they are extraordinary and they are rare. So congratulations for being you and our dear listeners. You may be somebody like Lynn and like me, I'll tell you my story in just a second, who is always dreamed up into a leadership role. Almost any group you get into, when leadership is called for, nobody else is stepping up or they do a bad job and you find yourself called into leadership over and over and over again. Sometimes it feels like a burden. Oh my God, I got to lead this too, like that. So what we're trying to do is to parse that out. Me, I played rugby for 23 years. I was captain of every team I played on except for two years when I was in residency. <laughs> I played, but I wasn't the captain, okay? And I was in the, the chairperson of the executive committee of our 40 doctor group. And I lead my team and my consulting organization and have done so for the last 13 years. So leadership is something that I do too. And I pride myself on listening and being available. So let me ask you this. You went through formal education. It wasn't an MHA. You said it was a master's of administrative medicine, master's of science in administrative medicine. So unique degree that Wisconsin uh, had for a while. And some other degrees like Harvard has a master's of science in this area. I don't know exactly what they call it, but it's modeled after it. And some of the American Association of Physician Leader master's approved programs, which you've heard of, some of those actually mimic it also. When you said I'm a clinician, I need to get some education about this. Just reflect back for us. What do you feel are the major skills that you learned that have helped you be an administrator that you didn't have in your tool belt as a clinician? Yeah, it's a good question and I have an answer for you. Good. It was clear to me that I knew nothing about uh, HR, uh, the HR department at uh, hospitals, clinics and academic places except I knew that's where I got my benefits. But the whole stuff about HR and putting people on improvement programs and how to do that and, and how to approach it without being, uh, I remember one of my leaders that I was counseling on, I was doing some due diligence talking to his primary care docs. And one of them said to me, I just wish they'd be more of a boss and less bossy. 
And that always stuck with me as a good phrase is when I try to do stuff, try to represent my team as a boss, as opposed to being bossy and tell people what to do. When I tell people what to do, it's more like, hey, this is the way I did it. This is the way we did it over there. What do you think about trying this? And if it works better for you, maybe we adopt it at this site. Now, the other aspect of training that was very, very important, maybe more than the HR, was organizational behavior. It was like a psych class for people in the job and the workplace, in committees. It taught me legions about what was going on in those committees where I couldn't, it was like I couldn't punch my way out of a paper bag. And then when I took this class, I was like, oh, now I get it. Now I get it. So those were the two big areas that I think clinicians get no, you know, no knowledge, et cetera, about, and they probably need some of that. Well, and I I understand what you mean, but if you haven't been in those rooms, you might not. So let me ask you real quick. You're in a room with a whole bunch of personalities. All of them have their own leadership position in the organization. There's differences of opinion. What are some golden rules of communication and consensus building that you've discovered and used? Yeah, I think it's important in this day of uh, too many meetings. I'm sure many of you, even your clinicians probably feel that's true, is to have a well-defined objective for the committee or the meeting, if it's a single meeting. Say at the beginning, just say, hey, it's my understanding we're together today to figure out ER leakage, whatever it is that you're dealing with. And you clearly define it. And then if some people say, oh, no, I thought we were talking about cost here. And then you sort of mold the objective to what it's supposed to be, or you inform them, no, our bosses told us that they want us to come up for a solution on ER leakage or whatever it is. Then I think in a meeting, when you're trying to chair a meeting or in a meeting, even if you're watching someone chair a meeting, I think there are some folks that like to get off on tangents and have their own soapbox. And I think that in a, in a way, you have to let them do a little bit of that. But then when it becomes 5, 10 minutes, 15 minutes, you really need to not go down those rabbit holes and bring them back to the objective of the meeting and maybe even say, that's a great point, And here's how it fits in our overall objective. Can we put a pin in that and remember that for the next step, which is what do we do when a patient leaves the ER or whatever it is that you need to get the committee back on track. Here's another thing. Oftentimes, as a physician, you've been told that you're the smartest person in the room, that you you are the highest in college, med school, residency. You, we all went through a very hard process to get where we we're at. And when you come into a committee of other folks, and some of them may not be physicians, it is very important not to think that you have the answer for the objective of the meeting. You may have an idea of where it needs to go, but it's more important to understand that to get buy-in and get people working on the project or getting it done, you need to hear from everybody involved and you need to validate those points, taking notes. If you've seen me in a meeting, I'm always taking notes. And then circle back to that at some point. And 
If the meeting is not going in the direction that you think it should, and you are a fairly intelligent person because you've been put in charge of this meeting, then you can nudge it by asking correct questions. Hey, you know, Dyke, what do you think of this aspect of physician leakage? And you can nudge the meeting towards your objective and maybe get it back on track. Now, sometimes it's impossible. And, you know, the surgeon and the ER doc are going to fight about something. And what you can do is you can say, look, it is, we will stipulate to the problem surgery has with ER. Can you two get together and bang that out at a separate meeting and come back to our next meeting and bring that important information of how you're going to work that out between yourselves? And then in the back of your mind, you write down a note, talk to surgeon and ER doctor's bosses. <laughs> <laughs> and say, hey, you know, the you know, the meeting before the meeting, Dyke, you know, like sometimes you got to have a meeting before the meeting, or something in that right. case, it's the meeting after the meeting, but you need to get people aligned. You got to work out this with the ER doc and the surgeon's like, no, I don't, blah, blah, blah. Yes, you do. You work for us, and at some level, you got to work it out with the ER doc. For anybody who just listened to the last five minutes of this conversation, you've just heard a master class on leadership that would not normally occur to a doctor. Because I know if you're listening and you're a doctor, you never took a leadership class. You never were taught how to lead, but you absorbed a leadership style. Figure out what's going on, give orders and expect everybody to obey. So our natural habit as the smartest person in the room is to show up at a meeting and think we know what's up and how to fix it and step in and start making our point and expecting people to hear the order in our voice and obey. I can tell you that when you're at the higher levels of leadership, you are not the smartest person in the room. And the reason is you've just got your opinion. You're wanting to give orders and to tell people what to do. It's just one opinion. And you don't have the benefit of the experience or the knowledge base or the education of anybody else in the room unless and until you actually ask a uh, question. And what do you think? If I come in and say, we're going to do this versus, hey, what do you think we ought to do? And Sally says, let's do this. And we run with Sally's idea versus me ordering what you what to do. How do you think the engagement is? And then the other thing I'm going to say is that the most important part of any meeting is to know the objective before you begin. We have a handout that we give out in our quadruple aim physician leadership retreat called the Gorilla Facilitation Manual, how to lead a meeting from the back of the room. So if you're in a meeting, that there's not a clear objective, it's really important to stop everybody and get them all. Here's the catchphrase. This is this phrase always is useful. Get on the same page. Why? This is also always useful because you know we don't want to waste any time. Everybody, let's take a minute to get on the same page because I know you don't want to waste any time. Everybody's going to be with you on that, okay? One of the things that helps for those arguments or those blusters and everything where we're going off track with a talker is a parking lot. Parking lot is a flip chart sheet taped to the wall, says parking lot. And what you do is you ask, will this person park this? The reason people don't like parking lots is because leaders have let things die in the parking lot. So you have to say, there's our parking lot. I promise you nothing will die in the parking lot. John, would you write that down on a piece of paper? And what do you think, everybody? Can we park this? The other thing I recommend is do not lead with Robert's Rules of Orders. Robert's Rules of Order limits discussion, calling the question, and it cements a disloyal minority. I didn't vote for it. 
So we always run our meetings. And again, this is piece of our quadrupling physician leadership retreat. This is what we teach our wellness leaders in that retreat is to lead and make decisions by consensus. Hey, everybody, before we get started on our meeting, let's talk about how we're going to make decisions before you have to make one. I recommend we use consensus. What does consensus mean? I can live with that and support it. Doesn't mean you think it's the best idea, but can you live with it and support it? And here's how you call for some consensus. Hey, everybody, sounds like we've made a decision here. How many of you can live with and support, raise a hand, how many of you can live with and support this decision? And then you got to go, I need to show hands. Anybody not? And if a hand goes up not, don't fear. A lot of people are afraid of consensus because they're trying to figure out what happens if somebody doesn't go with it. It goes like this. Okay, Chuck, what's up? Why can't you live with it and support it? Well, we got to check it out in two weeks. Make sure we don't get too far off the rails. And that's usually the only objection somebody has. We got to we got to re revisit this at some point in the future. So I say, hey, Chuck, could you live with and support it if we check in on it in two weeks? And Chuck says, sure. And I start again. How many of you can live and support this decision if we check in on it in two weeks? Anybody not? Now I've got consensus. Boom. Nobody can say I didn't vote for it. So those are some some skills that we teach, and obviously you already practice, maybe I put a little finer turn on them. And those are the kind of things, if you're gonna lead as an administrator, rather than just have an iron ass sitting in the chair, and that's your claim to fame, <laughs> you go along to get along, right? Then you're gonna to have to come up with those kinds of leadership skill sets. Now, another thing I know we've talked about, Len, is that rarely is a clinician let go. A clinician is usually only let go if they've done something that's violated the code of conduct, right? Done, right. Something, done, done something unsafe or proved that they can't play well with other people. But an administrator's job is not nearly as secure as a clinician's. Can you talk a bit about that in times perhaps that you've been let go? Yeah, uh, very personal stuff and actually prompted me to be asked by the American Association of Physician Leaders to do a webinar on it going on eight, nine years ago, and actually ended up me writing an article with my son about it that was in their physician executive journal. But the short and long of it is clinicians can expect to keep their job less than 1% of clinicians lose their clinical job over a 20-year span, whereas physician executives can have 20 to 40 times higher risk of losing their job. And what we say in the business, and you and I have talked about this separately, is like, you're good for three to five years because by then something changes. The CEO, the COO, the mission, the vision, you're now seen as part of the old guard and the new guards in whatever it is, you might not fit the model, especially if you're not malleable and learn the new way of doing things and support it. But generally, people will fall into that category. And I've lost or been demoted three times from physician executive jobs. One was an academic job where I was the residency director for seven years, which was the longest period of any residency director at that time. And I ultimately found out that my boss was actually worried that I was held in such good regard that he thought that I might actually be able to step in if he were let go. So it was a form of protection for him, which I, and just as a caveat, I always try to hire people smarter and better and than me because I want my team to be the best possible. And I always put forth my team 
because I feel that if the team works, I'm seen as somebody who can build a team that works. Well, so hang that on was, a second, Len. That's the final straw. It's clear <laughs> you're not a psychopath. <laughs> and you're not Darth Vader and you didn't go over to the dark side. This is crazy. Like yeah. I said, everybody, he's one of the good guys of <laughs> position <laughs> leadership. I appreciate that. So they let you go after seven years because the, the main program director was chicken. A chair. That was the chair position. The chair, that, the chair was a chicken. <laughs> yeah. So he ended up with that job for another 10 years. And, you know, God bless him. I, I'm not, I don't, but it was a good learning experience for me because I had tied so much of my life into being a full professor. To be frankly honest to you and your podcast viewers, I had fleeting thoughts of suicide during this period. Oh, gosh, uh, oh my so oh my God, like, what am I going to do? I have a son to help raise with my ex-wife and I need to make money. I didn't lose my job. I just became a full professor. I wasn't a leader anymore. So I actually sought some therapy and did a lot of reading. And um, it turned out that you know, I, I was turned on to some of the success through failure literature that I quote in my article. And actually, it, it turned out all right. I got a great position running hospitalists. So I was in primary care and then now I was running hospitalist group. Well, five years later, our hospital joined with another hospital and the guy who had like six months experience leading but he had 25 docs working under him versus me who had started a program with two docs and grew it to nine because the other hospital was bigger. They said, we're going to make him the director of the whole thing. And they're like, he's a member of the Society of Hospital Medicine. I said, I'm a founding senior member of the Society of Hospital Medicine. I said, I helped found that organization. You guys didn't even know that. And they said, well, we want you to stay. And I said, you're giving me a free ticket to go look for a, a job in leadership. And I was lucky enough to actually get two offers for jobs as regional chief medical officer for hospitalist organizations. So I jumped up to regional level and I had that job and different permeations of it and actually got into the C-suite at that company until they went through a downsizing. And I lost that job. But because of my prior experience, my son said, why don't you just go be a hospitalist? And God bless him. He was a teenager at the time. And I said, <laughs> I said, no, I don't want to just be a hospitalist. I want to still see patients, but I want to do something that has me in leadership. I've gotten this master's. I've got experience. And I know people tell me I know what I'm doing. And it took five months, which is the average time it takes a physician executive to find a position when they are demoted or they lose their position to find the job that I presently have, which I've had for 10 years that you know about. And it was a slight different sort of area, but it combined a little bit of what I did at the prior two positions I talked about. And I'm happily employed by them at the present time. And uh, in a leadership position, CMO type position. And um, I think what I tell people is it it feels like the darkest of the dark when you lose that leadership position or you get demoted. But the reality is if you get yourself together, you get some, some you do some journaling, you do some talking to friends, you take a course with Dyke, something like that, you're going to get to the point where you 
understand that there are some things you might have done. Some things were out of your control, but now you have to move on. And if you want to stay in physician executive leadership position, you may have to move, which is part of my article. You may have to sort of change your expectations, but you can do it if you hold out and keep looking. Right. And then let's just talk for a second. When you think about business, the business of medicine, mergers, acquisitions, upsizing, downsizing, the biggest expense on the CFO's profit and loss statement is always people. And the people they can least justify keeping in the company are the ones that don't produce RVUs and billable, billable yeah. services. So when you see organizations in any industry, especially if there's a merger and we're going to enact economies of scale, what they'll do is they'll take out a whole level of mid-level management, which in many cases involves medical directors and section chiefs and, you know, wing managers and that kind of stuff, which is some of the positions that doctors occupy. Let's talk about this for a second. I've heard people tell me, you know, I do two days a week. I do 0.4 in my FTEC in patients and 0.6 in a leadership position. And you know what? It's really hard. I'm not sure that I'm as skilled as I'd like to be in either one. <laughs> How do you avoid that kind of atrophy of skills if you're not doing one thing full time? Yeah, I think that that is difficult. You you have a you have a you have to charge yourself with continuing your CME and your learning on the clinical side. And luckily, I do that by having an inquisitive mind and I, my, my younger docs or NPs that work for me, they'll say, oh, I'm using this drug. And I'm like, oh, I've never heard of that drug. And I actually look it up and I look at the indications and I come back and I say, well, you know, tell me about the counseling that you added with the drug, because it says right on the circular and whatnot that counseling needs to be part. So I use it as a continual learning when I hear something I don't know about but on the other side, you have to do the same thing with physician executive leadership skills because it's an evolving field. We're learning way more. Organizations like yours have been very helpful to people like my people where I brought you in and had you speak to my people in, in well, at least one circumstance and our company had you come in another time for the entire leadership team. You need to keep going after that stuff because something's going to stick. You're going to say, oh, what a great idea. Take the hat off when you get home. I love that with you. But uh, something's going to stick at different times of your career. So it's an ongoing learning. But one thing I'm going to make the point about that you and I have talked about in the past, and that is as a physician executive, I never give up my clinical aspect of care. So the reason is I can always fall back on doing clinical medicine and while being a physician executive, when my clinicians turn to me and say X, Y, Z, I can say, no, 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 no. I'm in that chart and I see patients and it's not X, Y, Z, it's ABC because I'm seeing patients. How much do you, how much of your FTE right now is patient care? Oh, it's probably 0.1. Okay. Uh, you know, 10%. It's not at, at my level. Having been a CMO position now for 15 years in different companies, they they at some places I you know occasionally I look at the job boards. I'm not actively looking, but they'll say no clinical at all, and I'm pretty close. But I have a license in every state our company is in, 
Okay, so cool. I can see patients. And this next assignment that you and I talk separately about, I probably will see some walk-ins and hospital discharges because those are two areas of my sort of expertise in clinical medicine. Okay, cool. And let's talk for a little bit about the different flavor of satisfaction, accomplishment, meaning purpose for a leader as opposed to a straight up clinician. Oh boy. So you know how to ask the questions. People tell me, well, Dyke, you're not even a doctor anymore. And I say, oh, <laughs> hang on a second. I beg to differ. When you retire, you're still going to be a doctor. Anybody who's survived medical education is always a doctor. We see the world from a different viewpoint. And I loved being a clinician. I really did. I enjoyed the adventure of trying to put together these disparate points of fact into a cohesive story and a unifying diagnosis and teaching the family how to take care of what was going on. I loved it. And you have to admit, it's a limited one-on-one -on -one cycle of one at a time, we're going to solve this and this and this. And when you are in a position of leadership, like me as captain of a rugby team, I played, I was a member of the team, but coordinating the activity with all these people to maximum performance and marching home again in victory, holding, holding the trophy, right? So there's a whole different level of satisfaction, meaning and fulfillment when you are growing other people. So talk a little bit about the differences in the way. It yeah, you are exactly right. And I too, like you love seeing patients and actually have when my bosses have come to me and say, well, we're going to have to make you see some patients. I'm like, fine. Bring I love it, it. I'll go right <laughs> back. And you want to pay me what you pay me to have me see patients. I'm all there, <laughs> you know, but then they, they usually back up and say, Oh no, no, we want you to still lead. And so, but I would totally agree with you. I think seeing patients and even if somebody, I mean, some of my examples are having to tell a patient and family they have cancer and leading them through that diagnosis as they don't understand what HEMOC is telling them. And I'm translating all the time as a primary care doc. You're always translating what the specialists say because no, I don't think it's not all the specialist faults and there may be some specialists watching. I think they are genuinely clear in what they try to explain to people. But when they hear that diagnosis, everything shuts down. And, you know, I grew up in a blue collar family. God bless my parents for pushing me to be educated and eventually go to medical school. But I saw it with my family. I still see it with some family members today. There isn't a lot of, oh, what do those doctors know? They don't know anything. So as a primary care doc, when I see patients, I always try to talk in their language. I, you know, worked a lot of blue collar jobs going through college and med school and whatnot because I wasn't funded by rich parents. God bless them. They helped what they could. But there are those rewards in clinical medicine and in administrative physician executive positions. Not very often do you get attaboys. There's an expectation that you're going to be able to lead and lead successfully. Kudos to the organizations that have one-on-ones monthly and have quarterly reviews where a physician executive or any kind of executive can put in, this is what I did in the last three months. This is what you told me to do, and this is how I accomplished it. And then you're reviewed on those metrics. In an organization like that, that is a, a very positive when you come out of a one-on-one -on -one and they say, 
you're, you're valued because of what you've done, but it's not common. I would encourage people to not leave physician executive positions because they're not getting an attaboy every day like you get when you have a patient smiling when they leave the room. Well, how about when you bring somebody on board that you've deliberately chosen to be smarter than you, and then they move on to a higher position somewhere else in industry? How does that feel? Yeah, I had that lucky experience a couple of times and uh, more recently in this organization. And honestly, if you're in the right organization, someone will call you up and say, by the way, that was a great hire and great mentorship and you did a great job. And they won, you know, administrative position of the year or whatever. But we know it was you that got them to that point. And even better, that person came to me and said, by the way, thank you. You know, I think it's great. And again, if you're looking to protect yourself and not have people smarter than you and not have people that are that can have potential greatness, you're going to have failing teams and mediocre work product and whatnot. But if you try to hire the best people you can and set them right and set them, nudge them in the right direction, you're going to have great teams that do great work. And I think that the key things that I teach and we have found most successful for doctors who are stepping into leadership is to take on two habits that doctors don't normally have. One, make sure that you understand when you step into your leadership role and out of your clinician role, you're changing hats. So take a big breath. And pretend like you're putting a hat on. This is your leader hat. In your leader hat, you do two things. You ask questions. You don't give orders. And you say thank you. So let me just say how important thank you is. Every doctor I've ever talked to, when I ask them to tell me their last ideal patient outcome, where they say to themselves after they treated that patient, yes, that's why I became a doctor in the first place. And dear listener, if you would think about your last ideal patient outcome, that'd be cool. What I found is that 99% of the time, those patient encounters are ideal because the patient or a family member said two words in the encounter. And those two words are always the same. Thank you. So a thank you from a patient is a peak experience and a huge energy infusion for any physician. Guess what you have in your power as a leader that's just as important? your ability to say those same two words. Early and often, you won't make them soft. Tell them why you're thanking them. You know, Chuck, thank you so much. We really appreciate your hard work, especially what you did with Mavis the other day when she was so upset when she came in. Thank you so much for calming her down and doing a good job of tucking her in. I was specific. It was deserved. It's going to make his day. And you can make anybody's day when you say thank you as a leader. I promise. Don't you think? Oh, I absolutely agree with you. And I I do think that it is underutilized for whatever reason, insecurities or otherwise by physician executive leaders is it's no sweat off your back. And there is a, there is a communion that occurs when you do that with somebody that they recognize that you recognize they did something above and beyond. When it's genuine. The last thing I want you to do is say thank you just because I said so on a podcast and you're just playing the role. Oh my God, that makes everything worse. Okay. So be a mensch, say thank you when you meet it, do it early and often, and it'll make a difference too. Len, any other last thoughts before we wrap it up for today? No, I I would encourage uh, any folks who are interested in uh, physician executive leadership positions 
to do some due diligence and discovery. When I hire physician leaders, I look for people who are not trying to get out of something, i.e. clinical medicine, the grind, I don't like where I work, but there are people who are looking to get into something. They're looking, they're moving in that direction towards leading others. I, I, I feel like I have something to give. You know, people tell me that, that I mentor well or that I've served on this committee and I was very fruitful uh, participant. Those are the clues that you might be a good physician executive. Move towards that. It's a very rewarding career in my mind. Uh, although it does have its pitfalls, which you brought up about the transient nature of the positions and stuff. Well, and that goes along with another principle we use here. You can avoid everything you don't want and you still won't get what you want because the only way to get what you want is to figure out what that is and go get it. So we would want you to be running towards a position of physician leadership rather than away from a clinical position and trying to figure out how to make a blended one work just because you're burned out. Now, having said that, my experience is 70% of doctors who go into administration do so because they're burned out in patient care. I don't consider that to be a particularly valuable reason to make that switch. Unless, like you said, it's a calling to lead. And if you're one of those people that's consistently called to lead, you feel it right now as we talk about it. Len, tell me about this paper you keep referencing. We're going to put it as a link in, in the podcast. Oh, yeah. It was uh, a paper that was published in the Physician Executive Journal, which is the American Association of Physician uh, Leaders peer-reviewed journal, and it was called Success Through Failure. Okay. I'll get you the actual reference. I think Great. I sent you a typewritten copy of it, but it was uh, it was years ago now, three, four years ago, and it's specifically about the, the issue of losing your job as a physician executive. I don't want people to go to it thinking it's about what we talked about today, but it's specifically about losing your job and prepping for that and having your family understand and maybe having a little war chest on the side ready for you to have five months of looking for a job. All those kinds of things. A sabbatical chest. <laughs> there you go. There you go. Make it a sabbatical. Great. Well, when so, I had mine, and I, I talked to you offline about this, but when I had my sabbatical chest uh, or sabbatical time, I approached getting a job as my job. Every day I was on the boards. I was, gotcha. you know, interviewing. I was talking. I was, how do I fix my resume, et cetera, et cetera. So great, great, great. Right on. So we'll link to that in the show notes. And I'm also going to put a link to our Quadruple Physician Leadership Retreat, which comes up in April of 2024, where we teach a lot of these things and very practical skills. And Len, thank you so very much for your time and energy today and for being a good leader and telling us what it's all about. Len Scarponato, DO, Physician Leader. That's it for today's Physicians on Purpose podcast. Until we see you in the next broadcast, keep breathing and have a great rest of your day.